Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Today on our show, we learn how Russia's invasion of Ukraine is impacting the Valley's leading industry, agriculture. And later, a new book from a Fresno State professor maps out the history of tyranny from Plato to modern-day America. But first, after years of scrutiny about how the Bakersfield Police Department does its job, A court-monitored agreement with the California Department of Justice may force the department to reform. In announcing the agreement last August, Attorney General Rob Bonta laid out some of the state's concerns. We allege that the Bakersfield Police Department's conduct resulted in, among other actions, unreasonable use of force, unreasonable stops, searches, arrests, and seizures, the use of unreasonable deadly force against those with mental health disabilities. Bakersfield maintains the state's allegations are unfounded. KVPR and the California Reporting Project have been investigating the use of force by the BPD. Today, we're looking at how officers respond to people with mental health and substance abuse concerns. KVPR's Sarith Hawk reports. Francisco Serna was on his own street when he was shot and killed. He suffered from dementia. He was unarmed. He was 73. He was a father, a husband, a grandfather. That's his daughter, Laura Serna, talking to Radio Bilingue. It was December 12, 2016, and it was after midnight. Serna began talking to a woman who believed she saw a weapon in his jacket pocket. Brown jacket, unknown if under the influence armed with a revolver. This is dispatch tape from that night, released to media outlets at the time. Officer Reagan Selman was the first at Silver Birch Avenue. Eight calls for welfare checks or tripped burglar alarms at Serna's house had brought officers out before, including one time, Selman. On that December night, the dispatcher spoke again, after officers arrived on scene. Francisco Serna According to police reports, Serna approached officers and then refused to stop or back away. Selman shot seven times. An internal review found that Selman said, quote, I'm going to light him up before he shot. Francisco Serna was pronounced dead at the scene. The object he carried was a crucifix. Here's Laura Serna again. It was awful, she said, because it was death at the hands of the police, someone you think is there to protect you. The shooting sparked national and international media attention and community outcry. It was an emotional day in southwest Bakersfield at the scene of that shooting. There's more questions than answers as to why a Bakersfield police officer shot and killed. 73-year-old Francisco Serna. Lyle Martin had just been appointed head of the department in 2016. From his earliest press conferences, he defended his officers. They're having to make a call in 20 to 30 seconds without any um, direct information regarding Mr. Cerna and his condition. I, I can't tell you that they could have made a determination as to what his condition was based on him walking towards them. They're being told he had a firearm and that's him. So it's kind of a... It's kind of tough to address that in 20 seconds. What has the police department learned from this? There's lots of things that we can learn from this. One is things happen rapidly. Martin mentioned the value of training and continued. But I will tell you, those that call for de-escalation and defusing need to understand that that is a two-person process. But if the second person does not, de-escalate or defuse. At some point, we have to take some action. 
The California Department of Justice announced its investigation into the police department just 10 days after Serna's death. Now retired, Martin spoke to me recently and reflected on that moment. I knew it was going to take at least five years. I was not going to wait to see what they were going to say. One of those priorities, he said, was to change the way the department responded to people experiencing a mental health crisis. I was going to go with what my heart and soul told me this community needed and what it wanted. The community had been asking for change long before Serna's death. Josh Stenner is a community organizer with the nonprofit Faith in the Valley. When Francisco Serna was killed, it sort of just turned everything to 11. Um, an already heated situation became even more heated. We asked the Bakersfield Police Department about this and other cases where officers used force and caused serious injury or death. In a written statement, the department points out that these are, quote, dynamic, highly violent, and immediate encounters outside of ideal clinical or controlled settings. And the department says they're rare. BPD says less than 3% of people involved in these incidents were, quote, suffering directly from a mental health crisis. We don't know how they counted that. We read their reports about these use-of-force incidents between 2014 and 2019. Our number was much higher. Our review found mental health was a factor in 41% of these cases. Lisa Pickoff-White is our lead data journalist with the California Reporting Project. We counted people described as crazy or strange by witnesses or callers to 911. People with a confirmed diagnosis, like schizophrenia. People who displayed signs of disability or erratic behavior on scene, according to police reports. And people who demanded police harm them. After Serna's death, Chief Lyle Martin sent an officer to work full-time with Kern Behavioral Health and Recovery Services. The county's program includes a mobile evaluation team that responds to emergency calls in need of a mental health professional. Licensed social worker Emily Lyles co-leads that team. I can tell you the more staff I have, um, the more calls we're taking. The city of Bakersfield has continued to update its approach to mental illness in policing. Last summer, the city council hired one trained clinician to work at BPD's dispatch center 40 hours a week. And the state requires crisis intervention training for sworn officers. According to BPD, only about 40 percent of officers have completed that training as of the end of February. Lyles helps train officers across Kern County. That training is specifically focused on giving officers a toolkit of practical knowledge of when I respond to a call, what are some signs, symptoms, behaviors that might indicate this person's experiencing a mental health crisis? We really only see those effects of training when officers volunteer to go through the training. That's Seth Stoughton, a former police officer and now a law professor at the University of South Carolina. Prompted by its own leadership and by public outcry, Bakersfield is evolving its approach. Stoughton says that appears to reflect an understanding that the traditional approach isn't working. But he adds that this is a wider problem. I think it's difficult to try and treat policing as if it is something separate from society. It's not. It reflects all of the norms and stigmas that we have floating around in society. Under its agreement with the state, Bakersfield will have years to accomplish most of the reforms it's agreeing to. One is due now. BPD promised it would designate an officer to coordinate crisis intervention by late February. That hasn't happened yet. The monitor overseeing the settlement said the department has, quote, made progress without offering specifics. I haven't seen meaningful change, and I don't think a lot of the community members have seen meaningful change. Josh Stenner from Faith in the Valley says the court-appointed monitor only recently reached out to community groups like his. I think it's too soon to tell whether the independent monitor is actually making like a concerted effort to like make some of these changes. He and others say they'll be watching what happens next. The court-appointed monitor will hold her first public meeting next Thursday. For KVPR News, I'm Sarith Hawk. This story was produced with the California Reporting Project 
a coalition of 40 news organizations across the state, including Stanford's Journalism Watchdog Reporting Class and the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism's Investigative Reporting Program. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. The United States was founded as an escape from British tyranny. But today, political leaders on both sides of the aisle are being accused of dangerous overreaches of power, which begs the question of how susceptible America really is to falling under tyrannical rule. Fresno State philosophy professor Andrew Fiala explores that topic in his new book, Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fools, Sycophants, and Citizens. Here's our conversation. You know, in your book, you point out that tyranny is one of those accusations that is becoming more and more widespread, you know, and particularly in in this iteration of American of America, where you know, everybody's so uh, politicized, things are so divided. You know, one man's tyrant is often another man's hero. So just to level set, how do you define tyranny? Yeah, Kathleen, that's uh, it's an important point. You know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was that everyone was calling everyone a tyrant <laughs> at one point. Um, so, you know, trying to trying to clarify that and make us be a little bit more careful in our use of language. So, uh, how I define tyrant in the book is that a tyrant is someone who wants absolute power, who desires absolute power, and that desire is based on pride, on hubris on narcissism, you know, self-aggrandizement. And then for the, for someone to really be a tyrant, they actually have to have absolute power. Um, those two things work together. Also self-reinforcing, right? The more power the, the would-be tyrant has, the more he wants power and the less, the fewer limits there are. So it's, it's that conjunction of pride and power that make a tyrant, which is why I think you know, a lot of people accuse others of being tyrants. And then really, it's who, mostly when we accuse people of being a tyrant, they're not really a tyrant. They may have, you know, inflated ego, they may be prideful, they may be bullies, but they don't have the kind of absolute power that tyrants, you know, in, in history actually had. Okay, so then under that definition, would Putin qualify as a tyrant? Oh, I, you know, I've been thinking about that, trying to, trying to think that through. I think Putin probably is close to a tyrant that, you know, I'm not an expert on the Russian constitution, but I have been observing and learning that there are very few limits on his power. And I think he's been consolidating power in the last 20 years or so. Um, You know, an example of that is the fact that uh, anti-war protesters are rounded up and arrested in Russia. So there is nothing like the first amendment to protect people's rights in Russia, as far as I know. And then throw in the mix the fact that, um, you know, Putin is aggressive and violent, right? So, you know, it's the invasion of Ukraine, it's the the poisoning um, of dissidents and so on. You know, it's pretty clear that that he has lots and lots of power and he's willing to use it with impunity, right? So he's getting away with some of this stuff. So I think, you know, in the contemporary world, probably Putin qualifies as a tyrant. Well, let's shift to talk about the United States. And, you know, obviously Trump is in the title of your book. Um, What would you say in terms of America's relationship with with tyranny? Obviously, the Constitution was uh, designed to safeguard America against an authoritative ruler. But, you know, do those checks and balances that are in place you know, have are there what are the negative consequences to some of those checks and balances that are in place, and and maybe take it talk us through that that relationship that America has with with tyranny. Yeah, so you know, uh, much of the book, much of my book is about the success of the American constitutional system in preventing tyranny. So, um, you know, I, I argue in the book that Trump has you know, he, he desires power and he's kind of has inflated pride. And I call him a would-be tyrant. You know, he, he seems to desire the kind of power that tyrants typically have desired, but this is the United States of America. So there are limits and safeguards against the consolidation of power. So, 
you know, all the way through um, the Trump regime up through January 6th, there were all kinds of resistances to what was going on in the White House. Now, it's never perfect, right? And it's, there was dysfunction and so on. But the good news about the past couple of years is that Trump left office peacefully more. I mean, you know, January 6th was was an anomaly in that regard, but um, he left office peacefully and there was a peaceful transition of power. Yay. <laughs> this is really good news, I think. Um, and it, we, I think we can be be uh, proud of our system that it worked in that regard. Now, you, you'd kind of asked about the history of this. You but know? before, before yeah, we go yeah. there, though, can I just ask you, I mean, yes, there was a transition of power, but man, it got really close. Does, yeah. I, I mean, does that concern you? That must concern you. Yes. <laughs> yes, it does. So, you know, I mean, you could argue we just got lucky, right? So um, uh, things could change, right? So the, the political dynamic can change. The the will of the people can change. The middle folks who I call sycophants in the book, right? The the, the civil servants, the, 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 uh, the facilitators of power, those people could change. Um, I, I, again, I argue it was good news that, that Trump moved on, but things could have turned out differently. And so part, you know, another issue, uh, issue I bring up in the book is that um, history and political life is always um, tragic, right? There are always risks of things going terribly, terribly wrong. The history of the world is full of awful things that happen. And I think that's important to keep in mind, right? So then you know, if we recognize that things could have turned out differently, that then requires that we be more vigilant, that we pay closer attention, that we think more carefully about our structures and, and the, the constitutional limits on power. And we, empower, we need to empower ourselves, right, to think more carefully about, about ethics, about politics, about the meaning of life, right? All this stuff is on the table once we really start thinking this through. Um, and, you know, so my, you know, my concluding argument is, what we need are moral citizens. We need vigilant, philosophical, critical thinking citizens. And that that is a safeguard, but it's never perfect, right? Because history shows us <laughs> sometimes things go terribly wrong. Well, I don't think anyone would argue that point, but how do we get to that kind of a citizenry when we live in a world where you know most people are far more interested in watching the latest thing on Netflix than they are on going to a board of supervisors meeting, you know, how, how given the state of, you know, how divided we are, how, um, how distracted we are, uh, how optimistic are you about the future of American democracy? Oh boy, that's a good, that's a big question. Um, th thank you for asking that one. Um, uh, you know, the word optimism is, is interesting, right? So it can just mean that you just say, oh, everything's fine and we don't have to worry about it. That's not my point of view. I think that um, that things only get better if we work to make them better. So you know, I am I am hopeful uh, that that this democracy can sustain itself. But when you take a, again, you take a very large historical perspective. No democracy lasts forever. The Greek democracies did not last uh, forever, and ours could falter and fail. Right. So. But again, knowing that, that then should motivate us to be more engaged and pay closer attention. Now, you mentioned in your question that, um, you know, we, we're often lazy, right? We're not, we're not interested in these kinds of things. I think that's the truth of human nature. I think I use the word in the book, fool or moron or, um, you know, uh, idiots. What I use this kind of pejorative language. But that applies to all of us, right? So even me, you know, there's there's days when, you know, I just want to sit on the couch and watch Netflix, and and I don't want to be engaged in the world. We all have that tendency, um, and it's that tendency, by the way, that tyrants and would-be tyrants exploit, right? They use our laziness, our ignorance, our disengagement against us. So again, the solution is we have to struggle to overcome that. Um, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not singling any single person out or any, any party or any group of people. This is a bipartisan tendency in human nature. We all, we all can get lazy, <laughs> take the easy way out, interested in entertainment and amusement. Sure, sure. Well, before I let you go, you know, I have to ask, since you've taken such a broad look 
at this topic and, and really contextualize tyranny through the lens of history. You know, I'd like to talk to you about sort of this political moment that we're in. Um, and one of the things that you've written is that you know, conflict and divisiveness is a feature of American politics, not a not a bug. And, and so in thinking about that, it just it feels to me like I don't disagree with you in any way, but it does feel worse. It does feel more divided, um, more divisive. Do you agree with that statement or is this just America being America? Yeah, well, you know, as you point out, and I argue in the book, um, the kind of dysfunction is is woven into the system. It, the you know my reading of the founding fathers and the Constitution, the checks and balances, is that it's set up to prevent tyranny. It's set up to prevent the consolidation of power in the hands of one person, one party, right? Um, and it makes it kind of difficult to get anything done. Now, like as you suggested, maybe this is kind of a, a bad thing. Um, but we can make progress. And so one of the stories I tell in the book is also the evolution of our own system out of tyranny in our own past. And I, I talk about slavery as the most obvious and egregious example of tyranny woven right into the heart of the Constitution. Um, so, I mean, one bit of good news is we don't have that anymore, right? Uh, I also point out, you know, women's liberation and um, overcoming tyranny in the family, right? We've, we've been working on that in the last couple of hundred years. So we can make progress and we have made progress. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done. And I, you know, I, don't, I don't wanna suggest that the American constitution is perfect, it's not. Uh, I can imagine some tweaks. <laughs> Other people have talked about ways to change it. Um, but you know, I think there, there's good evidence that in a sense, we're better off now than we were in the 1820s uh, so 200 years later, we got rid of slavery and uh, women, you know, are holding high office and are able to vote and all these wonderful things that have happened. I think that's the good news part of it. Well, that sounds like a perfect place to end. We always like to hold on to some optimism where we can. So thank you for that. I've been talking with Andrew Fiala, philosophy professor at Fresno State and author of the new book, Tyranny from Plato to Trump. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. One very tangible impact in the U.S. of Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been the astronomical rise in gas prices. But the reverberations of that crisis can be felt far beyond fuel and energy, and they're especially apparent in food production. In this next interview, KVPR's Carrie Klein sat down with Ryan Jacobson, CEO of the Fresno County Farm Bureau, to learn more about how the Ukraine crisis is affecting Valley agriculture. What's been fascinating through this whole war, that the engagement that's been going on is learning more about the importance of Ukraine to agriculture. And, and you know, that's one of those things even I didn't recognize prior to the discussions that have been going on here in the last few weeks. But uh, understanding more about just the land mass and how much production comes from this region has been absolutely amazing. And so when you start looking at global markets, yeah, you are looking at uh, a, a singular market like that can definitely cause a spin that's uh, going to have global ramifications there. Okay. So one of the issues arising from this invasion of Ukraine that I think most folks are familiar with is rising fuel prices. So how does this affect agriculture? You know, the rising cost of gas and diesel, what does that mean for growers, processors, ranchers here in this area? It has a very significant effect on agriculture. We're energy intensive. It takes a lot of energy to grow our crops. And whether that's diesel to gasoline to natural gas to any of the other types of energy sources, um, agriculture is dependent upon a reliable source and obviously an affordable source. And we're seeing those rates go significantly up in a very short window. And so it, it hits our bottom lines. As uh, farmers, we're price uh, takers, not price makers. We're competing on a worldwide market there. And so when you look at something where we've seen fuel prices here in California go up, you know, two and a half times versus the, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the averages we're more used to, it becomes something that farmers are paying attention to very significantly. Right. And of course, fuel is important, not just for farm equipment, things like tractors and all the harvesting equipment, but you know, also there's the transportation of these products to, to markets and to processors. 
Yeah. So when you talk Central Valley Ag, California Ag, I mean, we farm somewhere in the neighborhood of about two thirds of the nation's uh, fruits, one third of its vegetables and a great majority of its nuts and uh, as well as dairy products are very significant and beef products. These are things that need to be taken from point A to point B, point B being just about anywhere else in the other 49 states. And so we're very reliant upon both diesel trucks and or the uh, uh, rail system to make sure we get our products there. And so we're seeing those costs go up dramatically. One thing that's really interesting interesting in this whole conversation is that I think there's a lot of consumers out there that are visiting the grocery stores that are thinking, oh, this cost is already being passed on because I'm seeing higher grocery bills. That's not making its way down to the farm. I mean, that's being sucked up in other parts of the value chain. A lot of this is going towards um, obviously the inflation factor, as well as these uh, increasing costs such as fuel. And so farmers are being pinched on both sides of it right now. And it's a it's going to be interesting as we, uh, we've come out of a very difficult couple of COVID years. Um, as we thought things were going to get better, uh, things are definitely not going that way at this point. Well, so then, you know, Ukraine, also Russia, are major fertilizer producers. So tell me about, you know, which commodities that we, that we grow here use the most fertilizers and, and what these rising prices also mean for growers locally. Fertilizers are an extraordinarily important part of any and all agriculture. Nitrogen and the other components that we put out as part of fertilizers are you know, essential for plant life. And so the reason that uh, when you look at why is Russia involved in this whole complexity of where and how we source our fertilizer, it all boils down to natural gas is a big input for synthetic fertilizer. And so you know, Russia has been a player in this for a long time. Here domestically, we don't necessarily produce a lot of our own fertilizer anymore. A lot of that has been offshored. And so therefore, any fluctuations in the overall global market does have an effect uh, when it comes to the bottom line that farmers are paying here. And so here in California agriculture, it affects every single commodity we have some way, somehow, because even if you don't directly use a synthetic, you're still now having competition for whatever other fertilizer source you might have had. So this is something that's going to have large ramifications in the U.S. It's going to have large ramifications for a lot of the crops that we do import from other regions of the world. Um, it's already been stated that some of these specialty crops that we get from other regions may just not be available or at least available in the quantities that they've historically been involved with because farmers just can't pay this humongous increase that we've seen of uh, fertilizers there. And so right now we're facing somewhere in the neighborhood of about two to three, maybe four times expensive, depending on what type of fertilizer you're talking about than it was just a year ago. Wow, that's pretty incredible because fertilizer prices were already increasing even before the Ukraine crisis, and then this just exacerbated it. Without a doubt. That's the same thing we've seen on fuel prices, natural gas, you name it. We were already seeing jump up those prices prior to the uh, issue with uh, Ukraine and Russia, and now it's just gotten you know much, much worse. There's just a lot more uncertainty. And what's interesting with some of these commodities, it doesn't take you know, you may be talking five, 10% of the market, which doesn't seem a lot to the average person. But when you're talking global markets, that can be a monumental shift when it comes to prices. And so that's what we're definitely facing here domestically. And then, of course, Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe. You know, what does it mean for agriculture here in the U.S., but also here locally in the Valley, that one of the world's major wheat producers has had to pull out of the market? So here, domestically, we're looking at some significant increases in a lot of our grains, not just wheat, but other grains as well. We here in the San Joaquin Valley don't grow a lot of those grains. They are grown in other parts of the U.S. But with that said, it still has a domino ripple effect that uh, you're going to feel in other places there. And so we are seeing uh, grain futures uh, rise, or at least they were rising after the invasion started. And so we, uh, we do expect that to continue into this growing season for this next year. And so as a result of all this, you've already mentioned that, you know, the the cost of food is already rising. But, you know, what else do you think that consumers should expect to see in in the produce and dairy sections and grocery stores moving forward? One thing that I think consumers should be prepared for, not necessarily that you're going to see an absence of products, but the exact product that you have maybe relied upon for a number of years may not be there. It's just uh, right now, I mean, particularly when it comes to imports, whether it's tropical fruits or some of these other things, I think you're going to potentially see some shortages in some of those areas there. I think domestically, we should be in pretty you know, safe position there. It was just, what, two years ago this week almost uh, to the day where we started to see some grocery stores uh, start to empty because of the start of the pandemic and the buying rush, uh, the buying spree that took place during that time. I was never, ever worried about, you know, America running out of food. It was more just supply chain issues. We learned a lot of things through that pandemic buying spree that uh, 
helped us uh, to be hopefully more resilient when it comes into the future, but there's still you know, additional changes and areas that will be improved upon. Price increases are probably likely to still go up. I mean, it's still likely we're going to see additional cost in the grocery stores. But uh, as I, I think it's very important for the consumer to understand, it's not the farmer or rancher that's making most of this or, or any of it. In a lot of cases, any of this extra money, it's being sucked up and absorbed in other parts of the value chain that's uh, seeing the, uh, you know, the large increases on the inflationary side. Are there any other impacts of this Ukraine invasion that you think are going to reverberate throughout agriculture that um, that maybe are surprising or or unexpected for you know for within the field or, or for consumers? What's interesting right now is just the dynamics. Is um, historically you would have looked at this invasion as a singular event and would have you know caused pinpointed at that being the reason why some of the dominoes are going certain ways, but. Right now, it's there's a whole host of other issues that are going on that is really difficult. We got a multitude of issues that are going on. We have the port and supply chain crisis that's going on for our inability to get both products in inward bound and outward bound. And you know that's one of those issues that's not going to be resolved overnight. Probably it's going to be you know probably third quarter at the earliest before we start to see some of those issues resolved. We're still waiting to see the water situation here in California has big effects on what products are being grown and the ramifications of what those, you know, what those areas are going to look like. You know, we're still very early in the growing season. Who knows what kind of other mother nature perils are going to come in, you know, the next uh, couple of months to uh, six months there. And so with all this uncertainty out there right now with uh, Ukraine, it's going to be interesting to see you know, those customers that were used to buying those products from uh, Ukraine, it's going to be, is, are they going to come to America? Are we going to be able to backfill some of those needs? And so there's a, there's some opportunity through all this crisis. I mean, obviously we would prefer not to see the situation going on, but there might be the uh, opportunity for California and or U.S. Ag to help to uh, fill some of these markets until that issue is resolved there. Okay. Ryan Jacobson is the CEO of the Fresno County Farm Bureau. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Ryan. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. And now for some news from our station. We're excited to announce that KVPR has a new podcast. It's called The Other California, and the first episode is out today. We're going to start by playing the trailer, and then we'll talk to its creator, KVPR's news director, Alice Daniel. What comes to mind when you think of California? Hollywood, LA, San Francisco, beautiful beaches, celebrities, wealth. I've lived in California for more than 20 years, and for most of them, I've reported on people who, like me, live outside the glamor of the Golden State. In a region rich with the stories that also define California, but don't get heard enough. El otro California. I live California, 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 California. 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 I'm Alice Daniel, and this is The Other California, a new podcast from KVPR in Fresno that takes you to the agricultural backbone of the state. When you drive over the mountains from L.A., you literally drive right down into it and it stretches on forever. It seems like you just went to a different country. To hear the stories of the people who live in the small rural farming towns, in a place that's often overlooked and misunderstood. When people respond, oh, I think I've driven through there, they're missing out, and that there's good work here, good people here, and a really significant story of California is the story of the San Joaquin Valley. From the history of labor, we were thirsty all together, we were hungry all together, we were tired all together. Everybody had to pull their weight, everybody. There were no slackers. To the preservation of language. My mom always called me Hi Alec, especially when she wanted to get my attention. Hi Alec, she would say. <laughs> when I was in trouble, I guess. <laughs> a place where a nine year old can train where an Olympic boxer did. The weekends, we don't come, but we either spar, like go to go places and spar. If not, we just, you know, stay home, have a little break, and then Monday it starts again. In other words, this other California. The towns, the people, the history, it's interesting. 
this podcast will take you to places that play a vital role in shaping not only the San Joaquin Valley, but the state itself. Subscribe to The Other California wherever you get your podcast. New episodes drop every Friday starting March 18th. So, Alice, this is exciting. Tell us about the origins of this podcast. Great. Thanks, Kathleen. So the name, The Other California, comes from a book of essays and letters by the late writer and historian Gerald Haslam. He grew up in Oildale outside of Bakersfield. He wanted to close the perception gap about California, that it's not just beautiful beaches, the movies, Hollywood, San Francisco. So he told the stories of the largely ignored part of the state, the small rural towns in the Central Valley, including the heritage of the Mexican vaqueros who once characterized Kern County, and the Dust Bowl migrants whom Haslam sometimes worked alongside growing up, migrants that were fictionalized in John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. Okay, and and is that what you're doing with the podcast? Yes, that's the idea. Although we are focusing solely on the San Joaquin Valley, which is the southern part of the Great Central Valley. We're looking at six small towns in six of the counties we cover as a station. They are Avenal, Taft, Huron, Woodlake, Livingston, and Chowchilla. The lure of these towns is that they're molded by California's seemingly pervasive desire to reshape the landscape in the quest for always a new economy, be it agriculture, oil, even cannabis, and of course prisons, although that's a whole other podcast. Episodes will look at each place from various angles. It might include immigration, identity, history, change makers, traditional arts, and youth. And the entire KVPR news team is involved in reporting this project. And from your reporting, what makes these towns stand out to you? Well, these communities are all very different. There isn't just one prototype of a San Joaquin Valley rural town, although from the outsider's perspective, it may seem like that. Also, these towns are very special to the people who live there. One of my favorite quotes is from a cowboy in Chowchilla. He's talking about the cattle drive that goes through the center of town every year right before the Western Stampede, and he kind of shares his sort of perspective on how unique Chowchilla is. Yeah, it's it's a little bitty town, but we have a lot of lot of history. And, you know, if you look at the sign out front, it says Chowchilla, unique way of living. <laughs> We're pretty unique. <laughs> Another segment from the Woodlake episode includes this beautiful conversation between a young man, Rogelio Chavez, and an amazing woman who spent her childhood working in the fields. Here's a quote from Olga Jimenez. We basically grew up fast. We did not have a childhood. We were very responsible since day one. And I should note that Olga and her husband Manuel are now stewards of a 13-acre botanical garden in Woodlake they designed and created with the help of local youth. It's an incredible place, and it's given hundreds, if not thousands, of kids a chance to engage in agriculture and do community service work. For many Californians, these towns might not be more than a sign on a freeway exit off of Highway 99 or Interstate 5, but they're home to incredible stories of community, family, and overcoming obstacles that are a really important piece of the California story. So the first episode is a setup for the rest of the show, and it's more a personal essay about your own experience here. Tell us about that. Sure. In the first episode, I talk about why I came to the Valley. My initial reaction was not very positive. I even share a Fresno cheer I made up, but also how reporting on small towns like these really changed my perception and helped me to see the hard work, the stamina, and the beauty of these places. I also look at the misconceptions we all hold about places that aren't familiar to us and are sometimes need to feel superior or inferior depending on where we live. I grew up in a place that was often maligned, so it wasn't surprising to me when I moved here to learn that the valley also gets disparaged. 
One of the hopes of this podcast is to offer a different perspective about the Valley that might inspire listeners to be more curious, more tolerant, and more open-minded about the world. And finally, in the first episode, you introduce us to an old friend from Tennessee named Mike. What role does he play? Well, Mike is my closest friend from high school, and when I first moved out here some 20 years ago, he had just been through a heartbreaking tragedy, the loss of his child. A year and a half later, he comes to Fresno with his family to visit, and despite his immense grief, he still has this immeasurable gratitude and enthusiasm for this place, and a perspective that is very much big picture. He almost serves as the transitional link between Tennessee, where I was living, and the San Joaquin Valley. Well, Alice, thank you so much for for talking about the podcast. We're really excited about it. Thank you, Kathleen. And I'd like to note that this project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And you can find The Other California wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, guitar and voice make a natural pairing. We hear it in folk, rock, and pop music. But in classical music? KVPR's David Ouse spoke with an L.A.-based duo who are bringing that form to Bakersfield tonight. Well, we're pleased to welcome the members of Duo Apollon, vocalist Anastasia Mariaris. Welcome, Anastasia. Thank you, David. And guitarist Aaron Haz. Hey. So, so great to have you with us. Boy, now more than ever, we need beautiful music. And uh, when I was introduced to your duo and went online to hear your recordings, I was immediately struck by just the immediacy of performance and the presence that the two of you have and just the, the vibrancy of, of the performances, whether it's a slow song or a, or a rousing thing. So I'm curious, voice and guitar is a relatively obscure instrumentation. So I'd like to hear about how the two of you met and started this project together. And then we'll kind of talk about how you've built repertoire. Yeah, well, let's see, we met at USC University of Southern California. I was doing my doctorate, Anastasia was doing her master's. And as a guitarist, we kind of have two options. One is to play either solo or with other guitarists in the program, or to kind of branch out and um, look for other collaborations with other instruments. And I've always personally had an affinity for songs because my dad is a songwriter, my sister is a songwriter, and me being a classical musician, I figure there's there's a window into that in classical music as well. And uh, Anastasia and I met, I, I think I heard you sing somewhere before. And, you know, we can be overwhelmed as guitarists by these huge operatic voices. You know, this is big and they dominate the entire. And I'm not saying Anastasia's voice can't do that, but she's also really good at being intimate and the the sound of the guitar and her voice just seemed to had a lot have a lot of potential to mix together pretty well Anastasia, what's it like for you to have come into this collaboration? And because you sing in a variety of styles and mm-hmm. with all different kinds of instrumentation, I'd like to hear from you. Like Aaron's song is also very important to me as well. I grew up in a family singing Greek folk songs all the time. So it's not too far off the beaten path for me to be singing in a chamber music setting with Aaron because I kind of grew up singing songs and also as a classical vocalist I feel like I'm using my training because I have to sing these pieces in the classical style even though I'm not singing in a full operatic voice I still get to use my 
classical technique. Right. You're still using all that technique mm -hmm. and, and, um, and technique, of course, is there hopefully not just to show off, Hey, see what I can do, but rather to bring the song to life and tell the story that you're trying to tell. Exactly. It just basically is there to help give me the tools to express what I want to express as a singer. Okay. Very good. So was there like any time a golden age of kind of guitar and voice music, or is it something that's kind of existed kind of throughout music, but you just have to seek it out a little bit more when you're building repertoire? You know, there was a golden age, but it wasn't of guitar and voice. It was actually of lute and voice. And so this is the age of lute songs. So that's going back some time then. So oh, several, yeah. Several centuries. Okay. Yeah. So another part of building repertoire then is uh, taking other kind of voice and and instrument combinations and then doing what we call transcriptions, right? Adapting them for your instrumentation. I'm guessing that uh, leader, piano and voice, is uh, a particular rich area to mine for that kind of repertoire. Definitely. And speaking of leader, Aaron found these amazing transcriptions of Schubert's very famous song cycle, Winterreise. And we've been performing them. Just recently, we added them into our repertoire. It's not the most normal thing for um, for our duo, first of all, because uh, the songs are written from the point of view of, a, of a, we assume, a male, and also for piano and, and voice, and usually, you know, tenor. Uh, occasionally, there's actually transcriptions for baritone. And so it's it's uh, it was kind of like, these songs are just so good. How could we not do them? And once we started rehearsing them and playing them, we just, there was... I mean, there's, there's no reason yeah, to not do that. Yeah, there's no way we couldn't. No. <laughs> Here's a bit of Duo Apollon performing Der Lindenbaum from Franz Schubert's song cycle Winterreise. <laughs> things that's particular about the art song is it is such compared to you know operatic performance it's such an intimate uh medium mm -hmm. it's intimate between the two players because you're having a conversation on stage and uh and then the intimacy of of the voice and the story you're telling and the kind of stories that you're telling in those kinds of songs exactly and unlike um singing in an opera, you're not hiding behind a character. It's you telling the story directly to the audience from your perspective, not from Great. the character's perspective. Now we've talked about lute song and we've talked about leader, but you also have more contemporary literature in your repertoire as well. Yeah, we do. And this is sort of the, this was sort of the new golden age of, of the guitar in the 20th century, you know, with Segovia, who was one of the first guitarists to get music written by non-guitarists. And so all of a sudden you had composers like Benjamin Britten, like uh, the Italian composer Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco, uh, both of, uh, of which we, we perform music by, those, those two composers. And it opened the world for guitar in many ways, but especially in this sort of, it, it, it kind of got out of its conceptual box. When a guitarist writes guitar music, it's idiomatic, it's, it may be easy to play, maybe difficult to play, but it kind of all fo follows a similar pattern. And then you have all these pianists of the 20th century. They were mostly pianist uh, composers writing for the guitar and with, with their sort of different perspective and bringing that to the guitar and creating some really beautiful voice and guitar repertoire took the guitar to a, a very different level. And, and this is a sort of a new combination that's emerged in the last century or so. As an example of some of that 20th century music that Aaron has spoke about, here are Duo Apollon performing Benjamin Britten's Sailor Boy. Thus, 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 come all you pretty things. 
was the Los Angeles-based duo Apollon performing music of Benjamin Britten, the English composer, Sailor Boy. What's ahead for you duo in this coming year as we emerge from pandemic and things are starting to open up a bit more? So in April, we're planning on recording our first CD and we've chosen repertoire that's based on folk music from around the world. So we're, we are including... Defaya's Siete Canciones Populares Españolas, Ravel's five popular Greek folk songs, Britain's folk song arrangements, just to name a few sets. And there's only one missing, which is the cyber uh, French folk songs. Mm -hmm. They're also really delightful. So I guess we have uh, French, Greek, Spanish, and English covered in our, in our folk song collection on this upcoming CD. Well, we wish you well with that project, and I will look forward to hearing it when it comes out. Anastasia Mariadas, Aaron Haz, they are a duo up alone. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us, David. Thank you. Here's a little bit more of Duo Up Alone, this time with music of Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco, Balata d'Alessilio. Alone are performing 7.30 p.m. tonight at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Bakersfield as part of the Bakersfield Recital Series. For Valley Edition, I'm David Aus. And that's today's Valley Edition. You could hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You could also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show was produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mavi Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org/health-equity.